0: the Travelcast, episode 430. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. This week on the show, Dirty Jobs. It's funny. Just this afternoon, I was reading an article about the head food taster for the popular UK dog and cat food company, Lily's Kitchen, Philip Wells. Yeah, I know there's a lot to unpack there. There's a head food taster for a dog and cat food company. That means there's a person out there responsible for eating heads, is what I hoped the article would be about. But the truth is only a little less weird than that, depending, I suppose, on where you fall in the spectrum of being undead. A person oversees eating dog and cat food. That's right, like I said, it's a UK-based company. But far more interesting and relevant than that, as you keep reading, you discover this person manages a team of other employees who eat dog and cat food for a living. You see, regulations require that all meat used in pet food be, quote, derived from animals past as fit for human consumption, unquote. Which is a curious way of putting it, isn't it? Depending, I guess, again, where you fall on the spectrum of being undead. You see, the meat component in dog food is often made from scraps left over from slaughterhouses, expired meat from grocery stores, and in some cases, euthanized animals from shelters. Not at Lily's kitchen, though, of course, because they have Philip. Or more accurately, I guess, Philip's quality testing minions, who get paid 50,000 quid a year to make sure the meat paste slash dog and cat food is sans body parts of questionable origin and is up to snuff. They probably use a different term. Mm. How's it taste, old chap? Fit for zombie consumption? Uh, bloody bollocks! <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. If it's not zombie food, it must be human and animal food. <laughs> or British food. <laughs> Anyways, this week on the show, we look into these kinds of weird employer-employee relationships, and we're gonna start things off with a drabble. Drabble Drabbles are 100-word stories and the name of the game around here. Try writing one yourself. Post in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org in the drabble section. We might pick yours for next week's winner. Our drabble this week comes from Anne Steibing, and it's called A Cruel Master. Here goes. Several times a day, and several times every night, she had to make blood sacrifice to the machine, piercing her own flesh. It haunted her with its endless demands, rules, and expectations. She could go nowhere without it, do nothing without consulting it. There was no day off. Often, the sacrifices alone were not enough to keep the Master at peace. She accepted the cold spindle into her body more often than she cared to think about. When she died, she bled to death from a hundred thousand blood sugar checks and insulin shots. Our story this week comes to us from Brian Miller, and it's called Notes from the Assistant's Intern. Brian renounced all seriousness and quit his job as a newspaper editor to move to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and try stand-up comedy in 2008. In his first year, he was a finalist in Acme's Funniest Person in the Twin Cities Contest, and just two years later, he was spotted by Craig Ferguson, who invited him to do a spot on CBS's The Late Late Show, where he made his network television debut in April 2012. Every week, he writes football jokes for Kostaki Economopoulos's Quick Snaps podcast and radio segment, which is featured on The Bob and Tom Show and can be found on iTunes. You've heard his work on the Drabblecast before with his fantastic Lovecraft mythos story, Necessary Cuts from last year. Think you'll dig this one just as much. The story's a Drabblecast original. And so, without further ado, we bring you Notes from the Assistant's Intern by Brian Miller. bulletin board posting specifically stated that the internship required special skills, an orthodox hours, and an old-fashioned go-getter. So I can't really complain as I'm digging up coffins in search of heads. Even though that graveyard muck is hell on my Cole Haan shoes, I roll up the sleeves of my Oxford shirt and keep working that spade. Dress for the job you want. One day some intrepid young man or woman may be fetching moldering crania for me. "'assuming all goes well. "'Until then, I'll be go-getting heads the old-fashioned way.'" "'Dig faster,' Gorog says. "'He's holding the burlap sack of heads we've already collected, "'leaning against a gravestone. "'Everyone has a different managerial style. "'Gorog is a stern motivator.'" "'Doctor want these tonight. "'We mustn't disappoint, Doctor.'" "'A few heaves of mud later, my shovel bites into a coffin.'" It's made of cheap styrofoam. According to Gorog, all the souls buried in this potter's field received paupers' funerals on the dime of the chintzy state. I'm paraphrasing. Maybe if they'd done more planning in their cut-short lives, they could have afforded sturdier coffins with vaulted tops that made their heads less... collectible. That's exactly the reason a good internship, even an unpaid one, is so essential at this stage of my professional life. I hack a gap into the styrofoam, yank away a hunk of it with my bare hands, a waft of what I've come to think of as very specifically coffin smell. Whew, it really wafts. The body inside is a child's, not like a little kid, but this one never got to enjoy the thrill of driving. His dark hair is cropped close. The asymmetrical pinholes in his earlobes look homemade, as does the star-shaped tattoo on his neck. Probably a teen runaway. Sad. I fumble around the rim of the hole above me for the hacksaw. I don't throw the shovel up there right away. (laughs) A couple of heads into this task, I've learned some tricks. I use the hacksaw to cut through the neck, straight down to the knotty spine. Then I slice away the sinew along the sides. When the spinal column is fully visible, I slip the tip of the spade into the groove between two vertebra and stomp down hard on the handle to sever it. This is a serious time-saver. After that, you just have to saw through that back flap of skin and voila, head. The dead kid's hair isn't long enough to grip, so I slip my thumb into the mouth and pass it up to Gorog, the way you'd pan over a bowling ball. Hey, this looks like a good one, I say from down in the grave. Gorog grunts. He drops the head into the bag. It makes a noise that really doesn't sound like anything other than heads rolling around together. This enough, he grumbles. Fix it and we go. Gorog told me when we first arrived, you only dig up fresh graves with the surface soil still loose. When you're done, you have to fill the holes back in so that discount morticians are none the wiser. Again, paraphrasing. This way, no suspicions are raised. We can come back later if the doctor needs, say, some hands or legs. I can learn a lot from Gorog, both as a boss and an employee. I'm not entirely certain about the doctor's plans for the heads. I suspect it may have something to do with his headless wife, Abigail, who wanders around the manor. Wander is uncharitable phrasing. For someone without eyes or a brain, she's quite graceful in her way. She maintains elegant posture while she roams the expansive house in a series of satin dressing gowns, the stump of her neck covered in a swatch of Alencon lace tied with velvet ribbon. She bumps into walls and furniture. Occasionally, I'll find her stuck in a room's corner, disoriented. I'll gently take her hand and guide her back to a clear path. Being a good intern isn't just about doing what you're told. It's about doing little things that no one even asks you to. Following our Potter's Field trip, Gorog and I are back in the laboratory. I don't get to spend much time here. Gorog keeps me busy with other tasks around the manor restocking the candelabras, cataloging chemicals in the supply shed, tossing chickens into the alligator pit. Today, Gorog is so busy fussing with the heads he forgets to send me off. Usually, I'd assign myself some duty, but it's invaluable to get face time with the doctor. Always ingratiate yourself to your boss's boss. You there! The doctor says as he hunches over a spiraled coil of glass tubing that's slowly filling with a bright green serum. What are you scribbling about? I'm taking some notes, sir, I say, sitting up straight, hopefully as straight as his currently unrecapitated wife. His bushy, salt-and-pepper eyebrows hunker down over his dark eyes. (laughs) Taking notes about what? I tap the nib of my pen on this very notebook. My daily duty's here, Doctor. I find it helps me to organize my thoughts. Plus, I can keep track of any pearls of wisdom Gorog shares with me. I motion towards my boss, who's too preoccupied with mounting each head on its own electroconductive pike. He's doing that thing where he grunts as he breathes. That's how you can tell he's really focused. The Doctor nods and returns to his stew of chemicals. I can sense this is an opportunity that I cannot allow to pass by. "'Doctor, I've noticed you're a bit of a haphazard note-taker yourself. "'All around the open lab are tables and cabinets piled high "'with stacks of mismatched papers covered in frantic scrawl. "'I can only half make sense of them at a glance. "'Chemical formulas, mathematical calculations, underlined epiphanies, "'the occasional doodle of a tentacular beast "'or enormous eyes leering down from a broken line of clouds. "'Yes, I do all of my research by hand.' Well, forgive my potential overreach, sir, but might you better access the information on a more modernized system? I'd be happy to take on the project. Collation, organization, transcription. Gorog grunts loudly along the far wall. I catch him glaring back at me over his left shoulder. He couldn't do that over his right shoulder, on account of the hump there. He makes a grumbling, gurgling sound as he rams the runaway's head down onto the electrified pike. The doctor rolls his eyes at his assistant. Then he turns back to me. All right, he says. Let's give it a whirl. Later that evening, Gorog pulls me aside. Him, not your boss, he says, poking me in the chest with an index finger dark at the tip with graveyard dirt. Him, my boss. Me, your boss. He's an irascible fellow, yet I've never seen Gorog so riled. The hank of black hair remaining on one side of his somewhat misshapen skull falls over his eyes, one of which is brown, the other of which is yellow. Uh, My apologies, sir. I was just trying to take some initi- Gorog stoops over me. Well, stoops over further than usual, and surges forward to butt me in the solar plexus with the crown of his head. The blow thumps me back against the wall. Walmart managers start their team meetings with high fives and chants. It's always fascinating to see new proprietary techniques for motivation. GOROG, your boss, he reminds me. He's undeniably correct. The notice for the internship posted on the cork board in the lobby of the Cloverton Business School was clearly written by GOROG's hand. The tell-tale misspellings are one dead giveaway. GOROG hired me to lighten his own load, so he could better serve the doctor. I fear I've learned a powerful business lesson about chain of command. Gorog has served the doctor for many years. I'm not sure where he worked before that. His skill set is both broad and quite niche. The doctor's been conducting experiments of injudicious boldness his whole life, having inherited the manor and the lab and his professional drive from his own father, according to Gorog. Yes, again, paraphrasing. Most of what I relay from Gorog is heavily paraphrased. The doctor added to his family fortune with a patent on a microcerebral implant that can briefly revive lab rats and mice. This allows researchers to run more tests on control subjects past their expiration date. The captains of scientific experimentation have pointed out it means fewer total lab vermin killed overall. Although there is some debate among animal rights activist types about the ethics of continually reviving a creature only to consign it to dozens more deaths. But I'm not in the ethics business. (laughs) That would be somebody else's department. I'm in the business of business. You listen, Gorog, the boss says, and headbutts me once more for emphasis. Otherwise, alligators in pit hungry. The doctor is grinning into the old Apple laptop I bought him. It's the first time I've ever seen him smile. The screen's glow illuminates his frizzy hair, his white teeth, his dingy lab coat, his wide eyes. This is incredible, the doctor says. So all my old research is on here? And fully searchable, I say, with no small amount of pride. I lean over his shoulder to show him keystroke commands. See, you can page through them by subject, chronology, particular phrasing. It took weeks of work to do all the transcription, and another week to arrange the haphazard documents into some semblance of order. I scanned in equations and even some of the doodles, as well as thoroughly spell-checked the notes jotted down by Gorog. Remarkable! I should have done this much sooner. As you can see, we run a fairly old-fashioned operation here. (laughs) Yes, sir. What with all the candelabras and all. The heads watch us from the far side of the room. Three of them, anyway. The runaway and an old woman with long silver hair haven't awakened. The others blink asynchronously and clench their rigor-tightened jaws. Gorog is elsewhere, clattering around the house. Say again how you came to work for us? The doctor asks. A lot of people will tell you to always represent yourself in the most flattering light, even sometimes at the expense of veracity. You know, maybe they're right. I still subscribe to the notion that honesty is always the best policy. I guess I'm old-fashioned that way myself. Well, to be truthful, sir, I applied for several other internships and was passed over. I'm afraid my grades at Cloverton Business School are not up to snuff, average at best. I just, I don't test well, you know? Too much anxiety, I, I freeze up. But what I lack in academic acumen, I hope to compensate for in elbow grease and sheer determination. Cloverton, that's the little college in the strip mall by the interstate house, next to the the Meineke oil chain shop and, and the Dave and Buster's. I'm surprised he's heard of it. I've rarely seen the doctor leave the grounds. Indeed, a small school to be certain. The larger schools were hesitant to include me. I have a bit of a gap in my transcript. A little trouble with prescription pills that sidelined me for a few years, but I can assure you, sir, that's all behind me now. Fascinating, the doctor says, running his hand through a storm cloud of hair. I'm as honored to be at Cloverton as I was thrilled when Gorog accepted my application. Yes, Gorog. He's always wanted his own assistant. I told him I thought it was preposterous. Well, he's he's a tremendous employer, sir. The doctor raises a skeptical eyebrow. Mm, He's handy, yes. Been with me many years now. He does have a certain lack of vision, though, which is partly responsible for this archaic operation we have here. Say, I don't want to fully retrofit the workspace. (laughs) I am a creature of habit. But do you suppose you might help us further modernize some of our procedures? Oh, it would be truly my pleasure, sir. The doctor clacks away at the laptop's keyboard. (laughs) Marvelous. If I were to lend you one of our guest rooms to stay here, that would facilitate your work? No commute time. You could take your meals here with us. I cannot contain my enthusiasm. I'll go make up one of the rooms right now, sir. Thank you. No, no, the doctor says, dismissing my suggestion with a wave of his hand. I need you in here doing more important work. Have Gorog arrange your room. Maybe it's my imagination, but I could swear I heard a rasping sound just outside the laboratory door, like someone struggling to keep quiet, the whispered incarnation of a grunt. Or maybe it's just the heads, making their dry, rattling sounds on the pikes. In my short time staying at the manor, I've developed quite a fondness for the doctor's wife. Abigail really is a lovely woman. She lounges in the parlor with me while I do the required reading for my senior seminar, Machiavelli as CEO, and in the evenings we have tea. Well, I have tea. She sits across from me and raises her cup to the plateau of her neck. She can't drink, of course, not having a mouth at all. I think she enjoys the ritual of it. For someone with no ears, she's an excellent listener. I tell her about my work, digitizing her husband's operation, my frustrations with my coursework. She can't respond, although when I tell her jokes, she claps. Or tries to. Sometimes she can't get her hands lined up correctly. Abigail, I say one night, can I ask you a personal question? She sort of nods her shoulders. She looks stunning in a sable black dressing gown that darkly refracts the candlelight. It makes her resemble Morticia Adams from the old TV show. Well, 90% of Morticia Adams. How is it that you came to lose your... uh... She reaches across the table to take my warm hand in her cold one. It was an accident of some kind, right? She squeezes my hand. And are you well? I mean, do you feel okay? She squeezes more firmly, so much so that the bones of my knuckles grind together. It makes me suspect she could actually tighten her grip much, much harder. We sit silently in the kitchen nook a while longer. I sip my tea, she raises hers. Before I get back to work, I straighten the lace covering over her stump and pull the ribbon snug. It's these quiet moments that make life here so pleasant. My stay at the manor has not been entirely free of misfortune. I keep finding the entrails of dead rodents stuffed into my shoes, despite the fact that the house has no cats. My personal items frequently go missing, I saw the gnawed remnants of one of my shoes in the alligator pit, and once I fished two of my schoolbooks from the bottom of the trash can. Last week, the stew I saved for lunch in the refrigerator tasted notably, well, Poisony, I guess you could say. I tossed it out and made myself a sandwich instead. I made one for Gorog too, which he threw on the floor. Apparently he's more of a ham and cheese man than a fan of sliced turkey. Noted. Otherwise my days are full and fulfilling. I spend more and more time in the laboratory where the doctor's always hard at work. He's been tinkering with the heads, adjusting the flows of electric current and green serum. Lately, he's connected several of the heads' brains with threads of thin metal wire. Two of the heads have begun to blink and grind their teeth in unison, which seems to please the doctor very much. He's almost as ecstatic about the iPod I set up for him. Often when he works, the doctor enjoys listening to opera, mostly Wagner and Strauss, on an old record player. The sound quality's poor, and each opera requires changing the record four or five times. I've enabled the iPod to communicate with a set of Bluetooth speakers just as easily as those heads communicate through their matrix of wires. The device is fully stocked with Der Rosenkavalier, Salome, Elektra, Der Fliegenhollander, and the entire Ring Cycle. All of these operas are on here. The doctor marvels, while some of the heads marvel at him. I aim to please. Forget what your cretinous business school professors say, the doctor tells me. Professors, (laughs) no, not real doctors. What do they know? This is A plus work. I express my profound gratitude. Say now, what is your interest in the arcane sciences? I confess that science has long been one of my weaker subjects. You know, I just wanna work in a field with growth potential where I think I can be an asset. Maybe one day I'd like to have my own company. For now, though, I'm pleased to be just a facilitator. The doctor nods. Oh, I think there's an opportunity here in this house for advancement. (laughs) So flattering, sir. Perhaps I should speak to Gorog about it. Where was Gorog exactly? The doctor frowns. Oh, let me worry about Gorog, he says, as he pushes a sharp metal hook through a softening skull. I believe we can do great things if we... Put our heads together. That night, I find Gorog. I awaken to see him standing over my bed, knife in hand. "Uh, Hey boss, I say, rubbing my eyes. Late night project? Gorog presses the chilly blade to my throat. I think he means business in a different way than I mean business. You up, he growls. I rise from the guest bed in my pajama pants and T-shirt. Gorog shoves me toward the door and follows behind with the tip of the knife pressed against where I'm pretty sure my kidneys are located. He marches me out into the hallway, which is dimly lit by a few fading candles. Um, doctor, I say loudly into the dark hall. Shh. Gorog hisses. We head down the staircase toward the back door, You no help him. You supposed help Gorog. I do help Gorog, I try explaining to him in a whisper, with so many things. And when I help the doctor, I'm helping Gorog then too. I'm taking potential future work off his plate so he can focus on new projects. If you're not growing, you're shrinking. We could have a real good discussion about entrepreneurship. And yet he still shoves me out the back door. It's raining, not hard, though the ground is soaked. The mud squeezing up between my toes reminds me I'm not wearing any shoes. I know where we're going as we cross the backyard to the far corner of the property, beyond the work shed near the stone fence. Tending to the alligator pit is a big part of my job. Gorog wanted a Gorog, he says in a more accusatory voice than usual. You no help, Gorog. You make doctor love you. We stop in front of the wooden trap door bordered by a thick rim of concrete. Open. I do, sliding the bolt and flipping back the wooden hatch. A dinosaur stink rises up from the hole. The falling raindrops agitate the alligators below who flop over one another in the muck. This looks bad, I realize that. But always remember that a deal is never done until the contracts are signed. And even then, never give up. That's my point. Uh, Look, boss, if you want to renegotiate the boundaries of my employment, I'm great with that. I've never even received a proper performance review, which makes it difficult to implement the necessary adjustments. If you could just... Suddenly, Gorog comes flying toward me. Not directly toward me, though, and seemingly not under his own power. I see a look of surprise in his one fully openable eye as he zips past me on the right. I sidestep to the left, but the heel of one bare foot slips on the grimy concrete ledge. I feel myself going backwards into the reeking mouth of the pit. A too-strong hand grips mine, nearly breaking several bones, the same hand that shoved Gorog into the hole. It's Abigail, her nightdress clinging to her in the rain. The boss lets out a scream as he splashes down with the alligators. You gotta give the guy credit. He tries fighting them off with a knife. He even succeeds for a few seconds, slashing down into rigid bone and bloody leather. And then one of the alligators clamps him by the hump and drags him beneath the surface into the shallow mire. The other alligators join in. Apparently they have their own head-severing strategies. Yikes. Abigail pulls me towards her. I stagger away from the hole onto solid ground. You're drenched, I say. Let's get you inside. I guide her back the way I came, Gorogless, into the manor. She's ice cold, soaking wet, but not shivering. I go fetch some towels from the downstairs bathroom to dry her off. I change the sodden lace of her neck stump, tie it off with a fresh velvet ribbon. What in the devil is going on here? The doctor says as he stomps into the kitchen. He lights the way not with a candelabra, but with a new iPhone I ordered for him. I explain the whole unfortunate alligator-filled story. The doctor shrugs. Huh. Well, I suppose that was inevitable. His eyes light up. Now back to the laboratory. I've been working late. I have something to show you. Back in the lab, four of the five heads are wide awake, blinking in perfect unison. Three of the four move identically, although one of them has its mouth wide open, as though it's screaming a scream that will never stop. The fifth head, the runaway kid, is stirring to life. Its heavy eyelids spasm open. The lids part with a wet, peeling sound. Abigail reaches out for it. First, she brushes against the pike, which sends a white arc of electricity flaring toward her arm. She flinches away momentarily and keeps reaching until her hand brushes against the head's cheeks, traces across its dry, yellow eyes. She slips one cold finger into its mouth. The head begins to suckle. (laughs) Isn't it something, the doctor says. And I have to admit, that it is. All right now, we've got a lot of work to do. things out this week with the winner of our 100-character story contest, Swami Nona. Here it goes. My doctor looked at me gravely and told me the news. He gave me two weeks to live. Not to be outdone. I only gave him two days. Congrats. 100 character stories. We call them Twabbles. We host a contest each week in our discussion forums in the Twabble section, where we pick a winner and run it here on the show. But first, we post it out on Drabblecast social media, on Twitter, at Drabblecast. Give it a shot. You might be next week's winner. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Drabblecast was brought to you with the Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write us a review on iTunes. Tell a friend, spread the weird. Or consider donating to the Drabblecast. Our show is completely listener-supported. We bring you these episodes because folks like you donate to us by going to our website, travelcast.org and signing up for monthly subscriptions in any amount, or donating once. We greatly appreciate it. We use those funds to pay authors, to pay voice actors, artists, all that stuff. It keeps us going strong. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Travelcast art director Bo Kyer. Always does a fantastic job. Check him out at bokyer.com. Our program this week was brought to you by Abby Hilton, Bo Kyer, Tom Baker, Jen Fisher, A Gecko Tale That Regrows Geckos, Melissa Henderson, Adam Pratt, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, if you'd done more planning in your cut short life, you could have afforded a sturdier coffin with a vaulted top that made your head less easily collectible.
1: To my secret lair On Skullcrusher Mountain I hope that you've enjoyed Your stay so far I see you've met my assistant Scarface, his appearance Is quite disturbing But I assure you He's harmless enough He's a sweetheart, calls me Master, and he has a Way of finding pretty Things, and bringing get the feeling that you don't like it what's with all the screaming you like monkeys you like ponies maybe you don't like monsters so much maybe i use too many monkeys isn't it enough to know that i this mountain is covered with wolves hear them howling my hungry children maybe you should stay and have another drink and think about me and you